0: I just came back from Reactathon and Serverless in the Park in San Francisco, where I met Jeremy Daly, who's been the host of Serverless Chats for a while and also general manager of Serverless Cloud. I think Serverless Cloud is one of the most interesting applications of JavaScript and Serverless that I've seen in years. And it jives with a thesis that I've been writing about called the Self-Provisioning Runtime. I was on Jeremy's podcast a couple of months ago talking about this, and it was a really good episode. So I'm publishing it this weekend for the long form weekend episode. So enjoy.
1: This week, Rebecca and I chat with Sean Swix-Wang about self-provisioning runtimes. This is Serverless Chats, episode number 124. Hi everyone, I'm Jeremy Daly
2: and I'm Rebecca Marshburn
1: and this is serverless chats. Hey Rebecca, how you doing?
2: I am doing well, but I feel like you always ask me that first. So I'm going to say, Jeremy, how are you doing?
1: I am um, excited. Um, I am extremely busy lately. We've been in like a content creation, like just trying to get content out. um, And uh, it's been kind of crazy, Um, but uh, I'm excited for our guest today.
2: I know you are. Uh, To give listeners a sneak peek, I have never heard Jeremy talk so fast, and we all know that's really impressive for him. That's super
1: fast,
2: right? It's really exciting. And without further ado, really excited to introduce our guest today, who is the head of developer experience at Temporal Technologies, Sean Swix Wang. That being said, he's going to be here to talk to us about the Holy Grail and what that means at the intersection of two very special parts of a very special blog post and all these other things that we're going to get into. Hey, Sean, thank you so much for joining us.
0: Oh, thanks for having me. I'm excited to be on Been a long time listener, so excited to be a guest for the first time.
1: Ooh, well, we're excited to
2: have you here. Sorry, Jeremy. (laughs) Yes, we are. No, that's all
1: right. No, that's, I I was just going to jump in. I mean, honestly, like, I don't, like, nothing against other guests. They've all been fabulous, but I am super excited to have you here today, Sean, because um, I think we share a lot of the same philosophies. Um, We'll get into some of those things. But before we get into this and I dominate the conversation with uh, what I want to talk about, let's talk about you for a second. So, um, just in case the listeners don't know you, which I think is, you know, Know, that's just an absurd statement, but if they don't, um, tell us a little bit about yourself and uh, and what uh, Temporal does.
0: Yeah, sure. Uh, so I'm Sean, head of developer experience at Temporal. Um, and pre- previously before that, it, it just, which is probably going to come up in uh, the near future, in this conversation, uh, I worked at Netlify and AWS as well, uh, mostly on the serverless and JAMstack side of things. Um, and Temporal is a workflow engine, which I never really thought is... A thing that I would need until I thought deeper about the kind of work that really uh, requires high reliability. Um, so, really, it, it work, a workflow engine essentially does anything long running, and it does. It's responsible for for microservice orchestration or serverless function orchestration. It doesn't really matter. Um, just the general purpose, like what's going on, uh, where is where is the work being carried out right now. Um, Okay, that work is done. What needs to happen next, and um, and that's that's sort of long running job processing. Um, and I think uh, it's it's a general pattern that once you see it, you've you've seen that you've most people have built some version of this in some kind of ad hoc manner uh, right. most most of their lives. And this is the most uh, advanced framework that I've I found basically because it came out of Uber, where it was developed to serve Uber's needs uh, and everything from messaging to Uber Eats to uh, driver onboarding and, and basically like 300 something use cases at Uber. Um, and then it was open sourced and it got really good adoption at places like Airbnb and Coinbase and DoorDash and Snapchat and Stripe and Netflix and on and on. Um, and so that's that's why I was really uh, bowled over by it because it could possibly be that this is a better mousetrap. Mm. And, I'm I'm just really excited by that sort of thing. So I could go on about like the the why about it, but that's the long and short of it. It's a workflow engine that lets you write workflows as code, um, and I think the melding of infrastructure and techn- and, and languages is why we're here today.
1: Yeah, no, and I, actually, I, I want you to go on about it because this idea of workflows as code, um, I think, is is amazing. I mean, we've got a couple different um, sort of services out there. And probably, there's probably hundreds of services that we don't know about, right, out there that are doing similar things. But I think the 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 ones that come to mind for me that um, that I compare Temporal to, at least from a, uh, I guess from an execution standpoint, would be like durable functions with Azure yeah. um, and uh, and step functions with with um, uh, with AWS. Um, of course, durable functions are. Are, are again, I guess workflows, workflows as code as well, right? You write them within a function to orchestrate different things. Whereas with uh, where step functions are more of a DSL, and you've got to have sort of a specialized language in order to do that. Um, but talk more about workflows as code and why that makes more sense. Because I, I like step functions. I mean, I really like step functions. They do the service itself is great. The interface to it, though, I mean, essentially they had to build a workflow studio or whatever they call it, right? Because it's not easy necessarily to write the DSL for it it's not as it's not as intuitive I think especially to developers which I mean we get into the whole point of developers now building infrastructure or provisioning infrastructure um but I think that for developers the idea of using it as code makes more sense which is why I actually really like durable functions which in turn is why I, I love what what temporal doing
0: yeah, um, I should start off by noting the intellectual history here. So uh, it's really, really a small world here because there's only a small set of people who have been doing this for like two decades at this point. So our CEO was actually the original tech lead for AWS SQS back in the day. Uh, and then the tech lead for AWS Simple Workflow, SWF, which was the precursor to AWS Step Functions. So there's that intellectual line right. of history. And then there's our CTO wrote a uh, durable task framework Merck, which became the basis of Azure durable functions, which so both like both our CEO and CTO like both of them came from this background and then did it all over again at Uber and felt like they finally found the right abstraction, uh, which became Temporal today. So that's the historical context. I, I love the I love this history because like it's always people behind the technology, and yeah. once you understand like superficially, you're looking at docs, you're looking at API design, and actually there's a people story behind this. So I, I love telling that story. Um, but yeah, why model durable functions? Uh, why, why model processes and long-running processes as code? Um, basically, I think it's an, for me, it's an argument by language design, right? Like right now, um, if you're using some kind of um, domain-specific language like AWS that functions, Google Workflows also has a similar, um, uh, uh, arbitrary language that, that they've designed for themselves. You're basically limited by what the designers of that language have allowed you to do. Mm-hmm. Um, and you have to, so there's a learning curve cost, but also there's just system restrictions where you're you like, you have to get permission from someone to to model some kind of business logic that you can do. And right now, our point of view is that um, this kind of orchestration code is basically completely arbitrary, like, you, you, and you need the full expressiveness of a Turing-complete language to do that. Um, and so either you can wait for someone to invent their way into a Turing-complete language and have you write the AST in some kind of Workflow Studio or JSON or YAML, very verbose config language, or you can use a programming language that you're familiar with, use libraries and frameworks that you're familiar with as well, test them and version control them and syntax highlight and lint and all that all the other stuff use programming languages use general purpose programming languages to write general purpose business or business logic um and that's where we are at with temporal
1: yeah and and i want to let rebecca um get a get a word in here because i don't want to dominate no this i'm this is just
2: (laughs) i'm along for the ride today it's i'm excited
1: but but I, I I love this idea like what you said this you know being able to express it in um, you know something that's more uh, imperative type code right like where you can it, it's something you're familiar with and honestly I think this is where people get confused um, and we'll get more into sort of interpreting intent or interpreting you know the runtimes and things like that but this idea of saying that well you shouldn't orchestrate you know these complex things in code because something could happen there like I think you're missing the point the, the code itself is just a way to express what you want to do it doesn't mean that that's the way that it actually gets implemented behind the scenes, that I actually have to run a server somewhere and run through this and hope it doesn't break. It's just about sort of expressing that intent.
0: Yeah, totally. Uh, there's nothing else <laughs> I can uh, add to that because that's exactly what we do under, under behind the scenes.
2: So, the name of our podcast is Serverless Chats, which by no way, yes. you know, compels us to talk only about serverless, but I think what is really exciting is we like to talk about abstractions and how technology has come far enough today that allow us to like build the things we really want to focus on. But I also want to get back to the tactical, just for our listeners to help level set for them, um, if you could talk a bit about how you all think about and use serverless at Temporal and whether or not, like, how some of those conversations evolved, or if it's more of like a philosophical way of thinking or some of the tactical ways that you also apply it while there.
0: Yeah. We're not opinionated about that. Um, So serverless, uh, we ourselves are not serverless, but I kind of view Temporal as the single stateful service in your entire tech stack that lets everything else be stateless. Ooh. Right. So, um, and, and that makes for very wonderful serverless properties. Like it lends mm-hmm. itself very, very nicely to serverless properties, but it also lends itself nicely to a microservice architecture. We don't actually care about the size of the service, whether it's a macro service or a, or a nano function, or whatever the kids are calling it these days. <laughs> um, the, the point being that uh, you're going to have a bunch of different teams working on different functions all, all over the place, and they need to. Be coordinated, or in other words, orchestrated, uh, one after the other, parallel. Like you, you need to you need to branch out work. You need to join up work. You need to block on one piece of work being done before the other completes. You need a framework to organize all of that, um, and to make it easy to version and test and migrate all uh, all of that logic as well. Um, so for me, um, another another. Like this is me again with the narrative. Um, storytelling, the way that I found my way to this company was I was working at AWS and I was essentially a salesperson for AWS's serverless capabilities. I was at AWS Amplify, which is entirely like, it's serverless plus like Jamstack and DynamoDB with right. DB and stuff like that. Um, and I was like, all right, you know, this is a bit, this is pretty good tech. Like, and it's pretty scalable. Like uh, this all seems like a solved problem. Like there are like five or six different companies all doing the same thing. Um, what is not solved? Right. And so what I what I did was did uh, and and when you come to uh, spotting opportunities, one of the mental models of frameworks that I like to do is to do a jobs to be done analysis. Basically, just kind of go through and figure out like what is not still still not very well solved. Um, And I was kind of breaking down like the jobs of a monolith or jobs of, of, uh, you know, that that, that we use computers to do. And the thing that I kept running up against was long running jobs and long running. You think like it's video processing, right? And you're like, okay, if I don't do video processing, I'm not, I don't really care about long running or not. Uh, But no, actually, like long running when it comes to serverless, like what's the default timeout of a Lambda? Like 15 seconds? Like five seconds? I I don't actually know, right? Like anything longer than that, you start to need to do all sorts of contortions to string logic together to actually get stuff done. Um, So I realized that actually in the serverless land, like the, the thing service is really good at short lived tasks and, and scaling up really quickly and, and spinning spinning things down really spinning things down really quickly. It's not really good at the the whole like orchestration bit. That's why AWS Step functions is so loved. Um, but then you know there, there are developer experience ways to uh, improve upon that, and there are other uh, scalability um, and and other sort of API design metrics to uh, to improve upon that experience as well. Um, so yeah, I mean, uh, the, so I wrote a blog post essentially about like what I thought was missing in Serverless, uh, and Temporal found me through that and hired me for the job. So um, that's I think when you figure when you just like constantly gnaw at the edge of what you think is not still not good enough, like you kind you tend to attract people. people. People who think the same way, and that's why I think Jeremy also read this in in some of my writing.
1: Yeah, no, I mean, in terms of first of all, I mean, there's a whole. I think we actually had a podcast about um, writing good uh, blog posts, getting you hired at other places. Like that's that's another thing I just can't recommend it enough. If you if you have a problem with the service, and, and and again, as someone who has built a number of products. Please tell me what's wrong with it. Like, I want to know, like, tell me where those edges are. But just going back to like what you said about, you know, sort of those those long running processes, too, is that's one of those things where um, I think there are so many of these use cases that come up for, um, you know, for these these different types of long-running processes. It's not just video processing, like you said, but it's everything from just guaranteeing that something will happen. And one of the biggest things that I always, like, argued for, uh, and I told AWS this a million times, is the circuit breaker pattern. Do not let make do not let people make external API calls without building in a circuit breaker for them because again writing that yourself is such a such a pain so um, I don't know maybe we could just talk quickly about some of those other use cases that temporal sort of solves
0: uh sure uh, it's uh, I, I actually, so I'm not exactly familiar with the name of Circuit Breaker. Like, what are the components to oh, the Circuit Oh, I'm breaker? sorry,
1: no. A Circuit Breaker pattern is just that if you try to make an API call and that service is down, rather than yes. you basically keep trying to make the same API call over and over again, because again, we know delay. that when usually when services start to run slow, uh, um, the yeah, worst yeah. thing you can do is send them more traffic. <laughs> um, so the Circuit Breaker is sort of a nice way to be a netizen, a good netizen. I don't know, I hate that term. But anyways, to be a good uh, internet citizen, I guess, and to um, start limiting how much you send to it. But you don't want to be dropping your own call. So either you're queuing them on your side or you're sending, um, you're sending a call every you know every minute or every five seconds or whatever it is just to see if it's back up. Um, and essentially, once it starts responding quickly again, then you can start you know, sort of flowing your traffic through. And they eventually did this with API destinations in EventBridge that automatically handles the throttling <laughs> as well as quotas. Um, it took them a while to get to there, that point. but But again, you have to use that one specific service. But I mean, just in terms of other use cases that are there, like, you know, like temporal. Like, I know you, you talk about microservice infrastructure or microser, uh, microservices orchestration, things like that.
0: Yeah, so uh, by the way, so I call that, I think about that as in terms of exponential back off. So the, the simplest algorithm for spreading out all your API calls uh, into some kind of s- smooth load instead of uh, a spiky sort of load whenever you try to retry everything that failed, is you have exponential backups for everything. And, and right. they, they tend to sort themselves out over time, uh, which is a really nice property. I, I'm sure there's some math behind it, which is really fascinating. Um, the AWS uh, but,
1: jitter algorithm? Yes. <laughs>
0: yes, yeah. jitter as well. Exactly, yeah. Um, so uh, yeah, so we, we're, we're, we're really good for that. Uh, essentially, what, what I call that use case for us is reliability on Rails. Uh, in other words, it, imagine every single team making any API call, any any external service call, or any any service call to different teams' service, I don't I don't care. Like anytime you're crossing system boundaries, you need to set that up. Like that that is a basic production requirement that you need to handle retries and timeouts, and don't forget timeouts as well, because right. that's right. An, that's a, that's additional scheduling. So in, in other words, like why don't we instead of every single team managing that reliability infrastructure, we centralize it as a service and then provide that to the rest of the company, right? Which is uh, often something I'm seeing in the co- the big companies that we engage with that there's a central platform team that is responsible for the temporal offering in- internally and then all the other engineering teams are just customers of them um, and that's a that's a really nice pattern because then they just get to focus on their service and then uh, the reliability uh, um, guarantees are centrally orchestrated okay so that's the the general category of microservice orchestration but you can also use us for a couple other things um, which i like to highlight uh, so distributed transactions is one of them uh, essentially just the 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 Blocking and tackling of like having a lock here before you uh, you 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 execute the other side of the trans- transaction and then unrolling both of them if uh, if the other side of the transaction fails. Um, so this this kind of thing is really important for something like a Coinbase or or a Box, both of mm-hmm. which are users for of us. Um, and uh, if you think about it, like the 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 easy one for me to communicate is actually the Coinbase one because cryptocurrency transactions versus fiat transactions, like fiat fiat transactions actually execute right away compared to cryptocurrency, which actually takes some amount of confirmation time, right. and so imagine like you you have to kind of hold them uh, before uh, before the, the the fiat currency goes through. Um, so doing that across systems is the the main. The, the generalized problem of distributed transactions, um, and similarly for Box, even though it's just file transfer, doing it at Box's scale means that you're actually sca- you're actually spanning a number of different systems, and you need to be transactional because imagine if you had like deleted a file here and re- failed to right. reproduce it somewhere else, or or vice versa, you had two copies of the files somewhere. Um, so <laughs> um, just generically making that go away because you build it into the framework is a really nice property to have. Um, the third one is infra. Infrastructure provisioning, um, and so this is this is something that uh, we actually just had a meet up about this. Um, ter- uh, HashiCorp uses us, um, or uses um, you know the, the the open source version of us because they're not a customer um, to build Hashicorp, HashiCorp cloud platform, and it's uh, it, got, it just powers all the like uh, the the spin up and spin down of their clusters, which is pretty cool. Um, all of these are long running tasks, you know, as, right. as, as if you if you view them in in the right light. Um, and so the the argument is that you need to. Use our use workflows as code to interface with those SDKs, like whatever whatever SDKs they are. And for HashiCorp, they actually use Terraform as their SDK for <laughs> um, uh, for interfacing with whatever cloud they're on, um, and that seems to work pretty well for them. Um, and my favorite quote from Mitchell Hashimoto, who's actually an advisor to us, is like if he says if Terraform if Temporal did not exist, he would have had to build it for. HCP. So that's to me, and that's like the best endorsement for the for a provisioning uh, use case that I, that I, that we can get. Um, we're also pretty good for uh, monitoring and polling. Um, so I think uh, that's another that's another sort of uh, blocking and tackling uh, bread and butter thing. Um, I just got off a call with a customer who's using us for social media monitoring, essentially um, getting pings from like you know like when when some. Things When some mention or something spikes in mentions, he sends notifications to his customers, and that's a service that he sells. And we're really good at that because uh, essentially what you need to do is you need to do distributed um, cron. Uh, distributed polling. like uh, you have some you have a bunch of items. He has a million things. Uh, he has a million like hashtags or something under his watch list. Uh, it's like a, it's an Instagram polling service. And then he needs to farm it out to a bunch of workers. Uh, the workers need to complete or if they fail, they need to retry and all, all that good stuff. And then he needs to collect all that data, do run reports on it, and then send it, send it out to again to his hundreds of thousands of customers. So it's, it's a very generically uh, interesting like distributed systems problem, which I, which I really enjoy. The final one I'll, I'll highlight is actually DSL workflows. So I, I just said that we are, we are opinionated against domain-specific languages. But right. we're actually really good to, to be a base layer to be interpreters for a domain-specific language. So imagine if you are ConvertKit or Drip or some kind of email-based platform, and you want to offer uh, a workflow system and you don't want to build the actual underlying workflow engine. You can use us under the hood, which Twilio does, um, and uh, offer some kind of higher-level abstraction to your non-technical users.
2: So. I love the idea of like opinionated, non-opinionation, and a few different times that's already come up, right? I'm like, hey, how does Temporal think about serverless? And you're actually we're not opinionated about that. It's about like the use cases that we want to apply stuff to. But then there are certain things you're definitely opinionated about, right? Something that you had said yeah. around infrastructure provisioning is right. Uh, write your c- own control plane in languages you know best, and like that's a very specific statement around like write it in the way yeah. that your teams are going to be successful in building your product and getting it out to customers. So I'm wondering if you have. Well, I'm going to caveat this with, I know Jeremy's really excited to talk about (laughs) self-provision runtimes, so I know it's going to be the next question, but once we get there, I'm wondering if you can highlight a little bit around how you choose and evaluate what you should be opinionated about and what you shouldn't. Because I think there's probably always overlap between people are like, well, we should definitely have an opinion about this. And other folks are like, no. And then how do you sort of evaluate or make those trade-offs around like where you spend your time to have an opinion and where you're like, it's fine, we're not going to touch this. This is not like necessary to our core business
0: wow um that that is a very high level I, I feel like it's above my pay grade this this question It's, <laughs> it's very much like, like you have heat. to decide what matters to you um, and <laughs> that, like in in a perfect world, we would just have everything right and no trade-offs yeah. would ever exist um, but we we live in the real world and we have to make trade-offs and essentially, um, we need to really figure out like what is what priorities do we place above others and so for us um, we are like we have chosen as a problem domain um, long-running mission-critical workloads. Mission-critical in a sense that they need to be uh, they need to be e- either run to completion or failed. No limbo, no data loss. Um, that's it. Like end of story. There's there's, there's no other uh, possible state. Um, and so uh, we need to design the system to to handle that. And we and we also need to. Um, offer the API primitives that, that help people sort of code their application in, in the right way. So I, I, I've said a lot about orchestration, but I will mention two other... Uh, I've said a lot about orchestration and I also said a lot about the workflows as code thing. The the other um, uh, opinion, the third opinion, which I find that I don't mention that much, I don't mention enough, but I, I, I'm going I'm to mention here, is that we use event sourcing. Um, and this is a thing under the hood that like people find their way, like every every now and then, like a, a blog post blows up on Hacker News about like, oh, yeah, did, did you know that this uh, technique exists? Um, it's actually just people understand it and they, and they really like it, but it's just hard to implement. And so that's part of our job is that we we slice off a part of the event sourcing problem for you and we implement it under the hood so you never have to touch it. Um, and so what that means as well is that you can log, uh, you can, it also happens to neatly solve the distributed tracing problem as well, um, because because we log, have I an mean, immutable log of all your events and we never drop any work because if it's not in our logs, it wasn't done. So we just retry it again. Um, So it's a very logical framework to pre- to proceed on, uh, but it does have other trade-offs, right? So for example, um, in terms of cap theorem, like where we choose strong consistency over, uh, strong, like, uh, you know, high availability or, or uh, what's the other one? Like it's, it's, such, it's in other words, like latency, like we'll trade off latency for consistency. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's the kind of thing that we have to be honest about because, um, there's so many other priorities out there that we have to uh, respond to. But, um, you know, it's not to say that uh, does that mean we're slow? We're, we're not because we have uh, we have like a much more scalable uh, infrastructure that that bottleneck doesn't happen compared to other workflow engines that have a central event loop. So for one of the other popular workflow engines, which I won't mention by name, um, they actually have a core loop that only pulls uh, for new events every thirty seconds. In, in other words, you cannot respond to anything faster than thirty seconds, um, and that's the kind of thing that you only find out like. Deep, deep, deep into the implementation because they don't tell you about it because they weren't, work, they weren't built for that. Um, and by the way, this this uh, framework is meant for data pipelines which are processed once a day, right? So it's it's a reasonable assumption for that for the designers that framework to just base everything on a central heartbeat of thirty seconds. But for us, like it, everything needs to be fired at off pretty much plus minus to the second. Um, so that's that's kind of the design concerns that you have to really get into as you make your technology choices.
2: I think. You just earned a new pay grade, because that was a lovely answer. So thank you for that. I'll try
0: I'll try I'll try one more thing on you uh, which uh, which I want to see. Um, Because I'm I'm really enamored by this, and I I don't know how much of a a connection it it makes. So I think that a lot of the services that we use are basically customized custom databases, like fancy databases. Like a search engine is a fancy database. Um, An analytics engine uh, for you know storing your click tracking or whatever is also a a fancy database. And so kind of my high level abstract opinion of Temporal is that it's just a fancy database for your long-running work. Mm. Um, And just like search engines, just like analytics engines, you don't want to write your own workflow engines yourself, but for some reason most backend developers have been writing it for the past, you know, however many decades. This is this has been a thing, um, and so that, that's what I'm moving myself towards. Which is like, yes, it's it's very hard to explain a single use case for this because it's so general purpose. Just like mm. you would have like a search engine and an analytics engine, and then you do whatever you want with it. Uh, that's kind of that's kind of where we are with workflow engines.
2: I'm just honestly imagining a, a database like in a bow tie.
1: <laughs> yeah, they're <no, no>, basically. <laughs> All right, so let's let's move on to self-provisioning runtimes because I've Jeremy's been trying been waiting to hold for this back for, he's like, ah. in, in order to get here, but I'm like, it's now's the time. <laughs> so uh, I, uh, over a year ago now, um, uh, Doug Mosscrop and I, we started uh, working at uh, Serverless Inc., started working on this idea um, behind the scenes, um, thinking like, what if you didn't need to write infrastructure code, like why isn't code smart enough or why can't a system be smart enough to take code and say, hey, I here's what I need to run it, and this idea of the cloud computer or whatever. Um, so we work, we're working on this thing for like nine months, whatever, and then all of a sudden this article comes up, Self-Provisioning Runtime, and I read the first line, if the platonic ideal of developer experience is a world where you, quote, just write business logic the logical end game is a language plus infrastructure combination that figures out everything else. I read this. I put my arms out like this. Lights light up. <laughs> music starts playing. Dubs fly out from behind me. I'm like, yes, yes, that. Why, does, more, why do more people not get that? Anyways, so I, I will not do it justice. So can you just quickly explain what you mean by self-provisioning runtimes?
0: I feel like uh, people should just look at serverless cloud and
1: uh, <laughs> they'll, they'll kind of get it.
0: Uh, essentially, um, the what if your system, the system, whatever system you're running in, uh, understood your program enough that it was able to provision its own resources to run that program, and and so right now we're very used to provisioning resources and then running the program, and then whenever like the whole concept of DevOps is essentially like, okay, program ran out of resources. So we need to like spin up more resources or fix the resources or whatever. But like, why why don't you just like read your program that you're, you're freaking running and just figure it out? Like, I don't know. Like <laughs> you tell me. Um, and so like, obviously that's abstracting over a lot of complexity, but like, that's the end goal, right? Like that, that that's where this all ends, ends up. Um, and so ultimately like this, Blog posts came from a number of pain points. So again, I was still working in AWS at the time, and the new hotness is AWS CDK um, and and Pulumi as well. Like infrastructure as code, uh, literally as code, not as like, um, right, yes, <laughs> but, right. Yeah, right. Yeah. But, yeah, exactly. But actually, as as uh, as code that you can program and and reuse. Um, so all that good stuff about software engineering practices applies to CDK and Pulumi as well. Um, but I was like, okay, but yeah, like this is great, but also like like, we're just building up a whole bunch of stuff just to compile down to CloudFormation or whatever. And then on the other side, we're still reading in a bunch of config values and then carrying on with the with the actual bit program logic. Why don't we like? Where is who's like merging the two? Like, the, this is obviously the end game, right? So um, I have this graphic here of like these like abstract little blocks um, because I've been looking at language um, theory um, sort of design or or it's um i i I think the formal term for this is plt programming language theory Mm -hmm. and i have some friends in that field and i always listen to them but they keep talking about types they're like oh yeah if we had a better type system the world would be much a much better place and i'm like sure (laughs) right like you have the stronger type system monads and all that good stuff but like the other one of the main advances in programming language just that has still not been beaten is just programming languages that took care of memory uh, allocation for you, right? right? Like had automatic garbage collection, or just they just got rid of the concept of having to like uh, manually manage uh, memory registers, and that's a huge uh, step step advance. But that only happened because we had just assumed that the runtime would take care of it. And yes, it's not perfect. Yes, you have performance trade offs, and yes, sometimes you ha- you have to opt out of it and go down to a lower level language. But ninety percent of developers don't need that. And so, similarly, ninety percent of people who work with cloud don't need to know the underlying implementation details of like what kind of storage and what bucket to, to put where. Just figure it out for me, and like let me just work on the app. So that, that's where I'm at. Like I, I want programming languages to advance to the point where they can just assume the runtime to do it, and I want infrastructure provisioning to advance to the point where they can read programming the programming languages and figure out um, what they what they're supposed to provide. Does that? Ring a bell? at all?
1: <laughs> no, no. I mean, but what I when I'm just I'm I'm thinking here is I look at this and I say this is not. This is almost the self. The idea of self-provisioning runtime is that we only need to provision infrastructure now because we've complicated the infrastructure in a good way. I mean, we absolutely. I mean, splitting things out to separate services for queues and for you know databases and for workflow engines and things like that. I think makes a lot of sense. But go back. I mean, think about Ruby on Rails, right? I mean, it, you know, you could distribute it mostly run on the same server. But like even just you know changing your data structure by changing your code um, was sort of a really interesting you know approach there. But now we've gotten to the point where developers developers, and, and this is, I guess, maybe the evolution of where we are with serverless and maybe not so much if you're still you know, running VMs um, or even containers to some degree, but you're in there and you're hopping back and forth between that. Tell me what primitives or here's the code that I want to run and here are the primitives that I need to run that. Um, but that sort of, uh, that mixture now, it's like sort of like the DevOps, you call this the DevOps divide, I think. Like. What's the what's the point now? Like, isn't everyone DevOps right? Like you're developing and you're doing operations at the same time. So yeah, there's a whole management and monitoring and observability thing. Maybe later on down the road that might have some separate, um, you know, sort of separate responsibilities. But when you're writing code, that's what you're doing now. You're saying I need to run this on a Lambda function or in a Fargate container or on Kubernetes or whatever I need to do. And you need to know that that's where your code is going, anyways. So why why even have this split between writing code and writing infrastructure.
0: I couldn't say it better myself. (laughs) So, yep, (laughs) co-signed. Well, Jeremy was good. like, I was actually
2: just reading from your blog post. That you did say it. <laughs> um, well,
1: so, I mean, so let's talk a little bit then about some of the, because serverless cloud, we, we can talk about that briefly, but um, uh, but there are other companies that are doing this too, and they're going mm. down this path. And the first one I want to talk about is Darkling, because I think Darkling's really interesting, and, and you actually put in the post about, you know, is it a runtime or is it a language? Can it be a runtime and not a language? One thing that is interesting about Darkling is it. it. It is sort of its own proprietary language, which probably feels very familiar to like, well, not familiar, but similar to Svelte, right? Where Svelte has its own sort of proprietary sort of way of writing things. You know what I mean? So it's a little bit different than, um, you know, than just writing JavaScript or Go or whatever it is. So, um, So talk a little bit more about that, though, like the difference between sort of writing your own language and then just having a runtime that can interpret regular code with maybe SDKs.
0: I really like your comparison with Svelte because that's something that I haven't really thought about before. So Svelte kind of hacks their way into acceptance by being a superset of HTML. Whereas if you had to invent a completely new language, then everything is basically up for grabs in terms of, or you cannot assume anything. You'd have to learn everything from scratch, every single programming language construct. You can't assume anything. Whereas being a superset of an existing known language is a really nice way to extend upon something that people are at least productive and confident with. So that's a really nice uh, thing. Well, Darklang, it's no secret that Darklang has has struggled, uh, even though it's, it's got Paul Begar behind it. Um, but like the, the experience that I had when coding with it was just amazing. That like, right. um, And it was exactly that self-provisioning runtime thing, when like, if I needed a database, I spun it up right next to my code, and I saw that data come in, and I could click around with it, and it, it flowed through my data, and I could see the, the values that came out of that. I've never seen that anywhere else and it just really blew my mind. Um so I, I really like that uh concept and I think it, that uh for sure Was the one of the major inspirations for what I think the self-provisioning runtime could be, but I mean, there's definitely others. I think obviously serverless cloud. um, I had no idea that you guys were working on it, but um, Doug's um, phrase for it I think is is really compelling, which is um, essentially infrastructure from code, right? right? Like inferring infrastructure um, from code instead of like writing code as infrastructure and. Building it out and then like having code consume that infrastructure, whatever. Um, <laughs> <laughs> it's just it's just all sorts of loopy. But like I, I've also had that aha moment with Begin, um, what, uh, which is uh, Brian Larue's um, yep. uh, architect archi- architect framework um, that's hosted uh, because he includes DynamoDB as as part of his serverless functions. Um, and, and it's, it's there if you want it, and you just kind of you just kind of require that data. You, you you like you know put stuff in it, get stuff out of it. I don't really have to think about anything else apart from just writing, um, you know, import begin slash data, and that's a, that's really amazing. And so there's a bunch of other small little da- um, dabbles and, and um, stabs at it, but I think Service Cloud has been the most advanced implementation that I've seen.
1: Well I, well, I appreciate that. We've been working pretty hard. Um, but there, but some of those other ones you mentioned, though, they are, um, I, I think what what you said, so again, we we talk about is infrastructure from code, right? You say self-provisioning runtime. Um, if you look at, say, uh, compiler.run, they have this concept of what they call infra-free, mm-hmm. right? A high-level, uh, let me see, a higher-level abstraction enabling feature developers to write infrastructure-free scalable code with virtually no learning curve, right? So similar to infrastructure. I mean, they were all the same concept here, and then lambda is just about, actually, I love lamb dragon because it talks about reducing the size of your code base, which again is a huge thing, right? Code is liability. So every line of infrastructure as code is also a liability. Um, And you mentioned begin, love begin. um, Brian and I have known each other for quite some time now. uh, I love what Begin does or what Architect does because again, it simplifies the uh, it simplifies the abstraction to the primitives. But that's one of the big things though that we've been trying to move away from is mapping directly to primitives because yes. that's what you do with Architect. That's what you do with the serverless framework. That's what you do with CDK or any of these other things. And even though CDK and Pulumi have like a concept of constructs, and I forget what they're called in Pulumi, but essentially a way that you can package a bunch of things together, you're still at the end of the day relying on provisioning specific infrastructure and tuning that infrastructure based off of you know DSLs essentially at the end of the day because that's what they compile yeah. down to. Yep.
0: Yeah. yeah. So I think this is a kind of market maturity thing. Like, who are you building for, and who can you get or convince to enough to bet on you? Right. Um, so you have to walk a fine line between like, here's the end game that I really want to get to. And are they ready for it right now? And so a lot of people who are familiar with the existing Paradigms of of today like want that degree of control, right? right. They they they're not comfortable with you deciding for them. Uh, ultimately, that's where it's going to have to get to for it to be uh, truly ubiquitous. But right now, the people that you have to convince to make sure that this is a thing to to sell it into large organizations, they want that level of control because then they can just port over existing apps to that and just run it uh, and and start seeing the benefits from that. So I think it's a fine line. So I I kind of don't blame them for the pragmatism right. that they're oh, right. displaying. Yeah, but I, I I definitely see like I think it's similar to what uh uh you we we're talking about earlier with uh, intents like essentially you have an intent on a certain type of resource and you don't actually care about like what the indiv- what the actual instance of that is and what cloud it's on even um, but like you, you know optimize that all for me including the costs like then that's essentially what you're going for. Um, I think we have to step it up and slowly step it up over the next 10, 20 years of, of like how much control we give to people and how much we do for them. Um, but ultimately, like if we're talking about yeah, best developer experience, um, you you advance developer experience by increasing the number of things that people can do without thinking about it, right? Which is the um, Alfred White Northhead quote, right. which I really love. Like anything, anything to do with technology, like you, that is. The source of magic that you don't even think about that anymore because you just take it for granted. It's right. like, it's so boring. Why, why spend a whole one hour podcast talking about it? It just happens. Right. Um, so that's, that's where we want to get to. But like the, the journey to there is a lot of convincing people who are stuck to the old way.
1: Yeah. So um, I want to. I'm going to let Rebecca finally ask a question because again you do your I know the Jeremy. Is, but I have one. Go like I ahead. I have one more. You have a ride today. One more on this. So you are a former former uh, Netlify um, uh, person. So um, Netlify recently announced um, that they mm. acquired Simon Knott. Um, and he developed Querl, which is all, sort of a workflow engine, right? It's a, a queuing uh, tool. Nah. And, and <laughs>
2: uh,
1: okay, all right, I'm stretching there, but anyways. But one of the things that that they brought over, and I think was all inspired by the work that Simon had done, um, was uh, scheduled functions, right? So yes. now the way that scheduled functions work, and again, like I, I saw it, and I'm like, import schedule. I'm like, oh, that's exactly what we do in Service Cloud. But anyways, exactly. um, but I want that because I, this is the direction I want it to move, and this is my point about control you said you have to give people a certain level of control so if you look at the syntax for serverless cloud you look at the syntax for Netlify for scheduled functions It's basically schedule dot or schedule and then parentheses for Netlify. But essentially, you pass in an argument that says what you want that schedule to be. So schedule, we do schedule dot every 10 minutes or schedule dot cron and you can put a cron tab in there. Um, And it's similar, uh, similar Netlify. But essentially what you're doing in your code is you're expressing intent. I want this to run every, you know, hour or whatever it is. Um, you can do that with other things. So even APIs, we have a concept in serverless cloud where you say api.get and you you know do an endpoint, whatever it is, and then you pass in a handler function. That is very easy for our system to interpret that you want that to run when somebody calls slash whatever on an API gateway. But what else we do is we add a little bit of config that you can pass in where you can say, I want the timeout to be 10 seconds. right? I want the timeout to be an hour, well it can't be an hour, but I want it to be time but to be 15 minutes for this particular function. So you can pass in little bits of configuration. Now we don't let you pass in the memory and some of these other things. But there's, but for most, for the most part, when you write, you know, in the serverless framework or in architect or in uh, CDK or in CloudFormation or whatever or Terraform, and you say, I want a Lambda function, I want it to point to this snippet of code, I or this this zip file, I want it to run for thirty seconds, I want it to, you know, react to an HTTP event that does this, whatever. That's duplicating what you've already written in the code. So there, I'm, oh, yeah. sure, I'm sure there are going to be limitations that we're going to hit up against. Like, you can't do this. You can't express that in code, maybe. <laughs> but I just that, to me, seems like, isn't that the better place to put the, that type of developer intent? I want this to run for 30 seconds. I want this to, you know, even if it was a memory configuration or whatever, it just seems to me that's the better place to put it. And it still gives a lot of control.
0: Well you're not gonna find a lot of disagreement here. Like, so,
1: that's all I want, Sean. I just want you to agree with me. You want validation. <laughs> that's right. Just just can't guess who are
0: gonna agree with you all the time. Um, no, I I think that's good. I will say I'll say this, right? Like so I'm gonna speak out there are probably listeners who are who are basically screaming at their um, headphones right now because conciseness is not the end all and be all right? right sometimes it's okay to just duplicate things for some type safety for some speed for whatever right you're, you're you are it doesn't come at, at, at a cost because like if everything's implicit then yes you're going to lose some some uh some things along the way so uh, we should be measured about this like it doesn't uh, d- conciseness doesn't win all debates essentially is what i'm saying right um so yeah i mean uh, there, there there's that um the other thing i'll, I'll also point out so i, I want to push back on one thing which which is um, you know equating schedule functions to work to workflows, uh which is like the whole the whole thing of like you know obviously I'm I'm professionally aligned <laughs> to do this, um, uh, which is that you can build uh, a, you can build the beginning of a workflow engine with a scheduler because every workflow engine needs a central event loop right to to heartbeat and to to do whatever but using schedule functions to do. Uh, uh, the, the, the heartbeat um, essentially is not really scalable because you, you probably only have one instance of that scheduler right. uh, in there, uh, and so like imagine Imagine like having that, having enough calls to execute that you have run over into the second frame of whatever you're supposed to to execute, um, and then also like you're, you're limited to the, the the narrowest window that you can possibly execute on, which is uh, you know for the framework that I mentioned was thirty seconds, right? So like and uh, and then there's a lot of things else that that you need to build on top of that. So um, that's the thing I worry about, which is like people go to the schedule functions and they're like, okay, job done. Like, I have my entire stack that I can do anything with. And then they realize like, no, the, 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 job running process, um, or the, the, the task of job running is, is actually longer than that. Um, but I have a fun, uh, sorry, you know, you know, so I, I worked at Netlify. They are my second biggest shareholding in my net worth. So like, I care a lot about them succeeding. <laughs> so right after they announced it, I think like two days ago or whatever, they announced the, the, the launch. Um, I actually opened the first issue and said, here are the other 10, uh, product features that you should build because I don't want you to think you're done building here. <laughs> right. um, so I included jitter in there. I included manual triggering and pausing. So did you know, so for example, like I've been doing scheduled functions on Netlify for a long time because I use GitHub Actions to mm, schedule right. the functions, right? Like any, Anyway, there's you know, there's all sources of cron everywhere, but crons fail, right? right. Like And, and mm-hmm. I've been tracking, uh, I, I set up my project to track GitHub Actions. I, I ping my Netlify function every hour. Um, it's failed 10 times over the past six months. So do you have a process for recovering from failure? Do you have your process to backfill or to manually trigger when you need you need some job done? Um, there's all these other like s- sort of nuances that don't get considered when you com- compress everything into a little config that just that's just the cron tab syntax and then you link people to like the nice little like reference of like star 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 and then like right, you know, those right. little lines that, that everyone includes. <laughs> You're not done. The, the, the time is such a fantastic and complex beast. Uh, oh yeah, let's talk about holidays and time zones. Uh, but time is such a fantastic and complex beast that uh, I'm only appreciating after coming to someplace like Temporal, And so that's hence the name.
2: <laughs> <Yeah. laughs> Kron's fail is an amazing bumper sticker. Like, I would, I, I like that idea. Just crons fail, period. So what do you do about it? I don't do actually
0: understand how, cron, how crons, like, <laughs> basically, like, the system has to go down. But I, I don't know. It's such a simple thing, and you think right. it will never right. fail, because, like, how could it? But then, so so you don't plan for it. And then when it does, you're like, oh, uh, who could have saw that coming?
2: That's why um, I think it's so and, humbling, and, and because it is, a, what quote, unquote, <laughs> the simplest thing. And you're like, oh, if anything, that's taken care of. And it's like, joke's on you. Nope.
0: <laughs> yeah. Well, yeah. it's also and probably then, then to, the...
1: I was yeah. going to say, it's probably the source of a lot of ghosts in the machine. It's like that thing, like, why didn't it work? But then it works every other time. Yeah, yeah. You know, those random things. Right. And, like, you don't know because there's probably no logging that your cron failed. You know, it's just like, oh, it didn't call that function for some reason.
0: Yeah, totally. Um, so, I, I mean, I'm working on this blog post. I haven't put it out yet. But essentially, it's actually like, what, what is the most over-engineered distributed Cron on steroids. Like, what is the maximum <laughs> amount of requirements you can stick on this thing? Because yeah. that's essentially what we're building um, internally. So I, I, was, I was just wanted to just kind of go through like the hundreds of different little product decisions that you that you can really dive into when you start getting serious about scheduling in Cron.
2: Yeah, I want to pull on that thread a little bit, or almost the opposite of, right, of like, um... We we're talking about the platonic ideal of developer experience, right? And that would be a language infrastructure combination that figures out everything else for you. And so it goes back to what might be a, the mindset of serverless, right? Which is like abstract away the things that like take away from you being able to like focus on mm-hmm. writing your code and building your app, like full stop. And you wrote this really great post around, um, we build mucks so that you don't have to. And like, let's say, you <laughs> know, it, it, and why AWS is too hard for developers, essentially. And so um, we have been and maybe it's in our DNA, right, for serverless chats, is that we've been asking so many of our guests around, like, okay, what happens when you end up building so much to abstract away the muck that over time the solutions themselves become points of failure? So, like, when does building abstraction only add complexity and weight to something? Um, And I want to know if you have, like, a... I mean, I'm I'm certain that you have an opinion on this. Um, But this idea of, like, at what point does something becomes so abstracted that it actually is not helpful anymore and do you are there moments where you've had to pull back what you were going to build because you're like actually Mm. this simplicity is more of a burden and it's going to end up failing
0: yeah i think we do a lot of that and it's never clear you know Mm. and um and what's what's over abstraction to you may be just right for me and it's that's the beauty of, of software. is that you know you can always solve a problem by going up another layer of abstraction, but then also you're adding an extra problem because abstraction has a cost. And so I think people are constantly trading that off against each other. Uh, I will say that I think um, uh, so. My favorite story about this actually comes from um, I think I think it's Benedict Evans, um, and he had he was an OG Microsofter like in the '90s, and he talks a little bit about. Uh, the The word processors back in the day like microsoft word or whatever was uh, before it and back in the day like you had to buy plugins to get word counts to get um, <laughs> to get page numbers to get horizontal layouts um, and all of these were individual plugins like 50 dollars for like some some really routine thing that you take for granted today and that's just because word processors started out simple. And then as we grew and took them and adopted them and took them for granted, then we understood that the job of a word processor expanded into having more and more of these features. And now you just take that entire suite of functionality, and that is a word processor to you, right? Anything less is just not, not even worth considering. Um, and that's a function of the product or the product category being mature. And so I think it starts out simple, then it gets complex with more abstraction, and then it, and then, and then that gets absorbed into the that that first underlying layer. So it's about I think the number of layers that you want to manage, and you want to let that grow initially because you don't know as as the as the core platform designer, you don't know what the right abstraction should be, but but as you figure out like what people use you for, then that you absorb parts of that into your uh, program. And that is going to cause cause friction because people are building businesses on top of you and relying on you for that. And then you, you're going to take um, their livelihood away. Sometimes you're going to be hauled up in front of the European Commission for um, bundling your browser in your operating system. And you have to deal with things like that too. But now, what operating system does not come with the browser? right? Like So there, there's all these questions that are Just not settled, but I think if you think about it in terms of like the long arc of history, it makes sense. It makes sense that things get complex and then they simplify.
1: So one of the things, again, about complexity and finding the right level of abstraction, all these other things is, I think is a relevant topic to where we are or i guess a relevant conversation around like containers and kubernetes in the cloud right now. so i mean i would love to get to a world of self-provisioning runtimes it's absolutely where i think we need to to go but right now there's sort of this i don't know like there's a gap between even just going full serverless or service full versus sort of you know baking in a lot of this orchestration with things like uh with things like kubernetes and I look at kubernetes and containers honestly as a stopgap I feel it's like the hybrid cars where it's like we're all going to get to electric cars someday but we got to do this hybrid of electric and uh, gas for a while while the infrastructure gets there but eventually the infrastructure is going to get to a place where you don't need kubernetes and you probably don't need containers, there's going to be a better way to do it, run it close to the metal. I've said this a million times, so listeners are probably bored by it. But I'm curious what, you know, and again, because you're clearly a visionary thinker thinking about the self-provisioning runtimes. Um, So I'm just curious what your thoughts are sort of on the trend um, or hopefully a trend that is moving more towards making serverless, or I guess cloud-native, being just serverless. I mean, the cloud just becoming serverless essentially, mm. because that it, to me it makes more sense. But I'm, I'm, I don't know. I'm just, conf- I'm, I'm interested on your take on this. Is what you think um, about that that movement? Is that where the cloud's going? Are we going to get to a point where you're not going to need the Kubernetes and the containers, or are we going to we're going to be living with this for a very long time?
0: So the first reaction I want to say is like even the people who work on Kubernetes like um, Kelsey Hightower is famous for saying like he thinks Kubernetes will go away in five years. He said that (laughs) for like three years straight. Um, (laughs) But like I think so. I think everyone everyone's like expecting that day that Kubernetes comes an implementation detail rather than something that people wrangle uh, on a daily basis. Um, um, But the other thing I want to answer ask a question to answer your question is do you think that serverless containers are serverless. So the, yeah. the Fargates oh. of the world. That's the, how you put me on the spot. Uh, so Google yeah, brand. I,
1: I don't know. I mean, I, the way that I feel about those, uh, I don't mind containers as a packaging format. Um, but this idea of, of having to, I mean, if Fargate got to a point where it would spin up automatically based off of like um, events, like more events coming to it, and so forth. So if it had the orchestrator built into it, like right now, that is sort of you got to use was it ECS or uh, EKS in order to manage the orchestration of the scaling of those pods. <laughs> um, if that was just built into Fargate, where it's just like, well, if I have Fargate running and it just it, it will just you know increase whatever, then maybe I would feel more uh, that that was more serverless. But I also feel like just having to think about the runtime, having to think about the operating system, having to upgrade those yourself those are just all things to me that feel i don't know they don't make me feel great
0: okay got it um yeah i I think they're they're getting that's obviously the goal and um as long as as you can dockerize stuff like it's mostly declarative in as far as docker can be considered declarative it's not but whatever (laughs) um uh so you know, in that sense, if if that is serverless, then yes, the world is going serverless. But I think that part of the world is is staying is is here to stay. Um, I don't have much more insight than that. I, I definitely think there are a bunch of um, I, I call these cloud distributions, cloud distros. Uh, mm-hmm. Some people call them layer two clouds. Essentially, like uh, the Render.coms of the world and, and Begin and and um, uh, Covery. There's a bunch of other uh, other like. Mm-hmm. It's startups that are layers on top of uh, the big the big clouds that offer some kind of advanced this developer experience for a specific audience, um, and I like that they are all. Trying to innovate on top of the uh, th- th- if they're if they're server full or if they're I don't even know what the term for this is, um, but if <laughs> they're trying to basically be the new new Kubernetes or they're trying to abstract away Kubernetes for you so that you never have to worry about that uh, I, and obviously that's that's a nice very nice positive. Um, we have to see how it shakes out. Like I think it takes another five years to, to kind of envision this. Meanwhile, the serverless people are just happily going along, just writing functions all, all the way, and right. you know th- the world upgrades for them and they never notice. And that's that's beautiful right that's that's uh, obviously like if you listen at all to uh, ben kiho like that's the <laughs> he's he's a he's an absolutist about this kind of thing and i try to push back on him but every single time he he, he um he knows how to uh the, the right thing to say um so no i i um i, I think i think so i think uh, people want to uh give away that power um i will also say that i think one of the interesting trends that I do see is a counter trend towards like sort of repatriating from the cloud. Um, mm. I, I think you may have discussed this a little bit and people have mentioned it, I think, because it was an incendiary post from Martin Casado at Andreessen Horowitz. Um, but essentially, like, once you get big enough, yeah, you might want to go back to the serverful paradigm because you need that control, right. you need that lower cost, right? Because you are paying an overhead for the amount of service that you're doing. And yes, uh, people should consider TCO when, when doing this cal- these calculations. But at some size, it does make sense. Right, totally. um, And then there are companies like Oxide Computer Company that are basically providing sort of the hyperscale quality machines for you to build your own data centers. And it's like, what are you doing? You're, you're kind of going, going, going against the trend. But that's what the people who are really big actually need. Um, so I don't think service can be a one size fit, fit all It can be one-size-fits-most. Right. Uh, and that's what it should do. Uh, and that's fine.
1: Yeah, and I think you get to the point too. And speaking of uh, Kelsey Hightower, I actually saw him speak a couple of years ago. And one of the things he said about serverless was, "So if you get to that point where you know you get somebody else managing your server, that's fine. But if you really need more control, like who cares? If you're making money off of the service, whatever, you'll pay people to watch your server. You know what I mean? If you want that control, you can bring that in house or whatever you're doing. And uh, I always thought that uh, that made a lot of sense too. But um, but yeah, no, totally agree. I, I think it's a uh, it's this this matter of you know, especially when you're getting started, it's how much complexity do you want to take on, um, and how how big can you get before that complexity needs to where you need to take on that complexity. But I still think Kubernetes will go away.
0: Hey, it's a. <laughs> I mean, it's it's a big world. Uh, like, right? Like, you know, every cloud is expanding forty percent year on year, basically, right? It's like, crazy. which is which is nuts. Like, and it's it's such a big world that you're going to have a lot of diversity for a very very long time. People still running COBOL. Um, like in the same way, people still be running Kubernetes 50 years from now. Like, (laughs) so (laughs) define go away, you know,
2: such nostalgia, there'll be nostalgia around Kubernetes, you know, in 50 years from now, they're like, Oh, remember when? (laughs) So I want to fulfill a promise that we made at the beginning of this podcast, which we would talk a little bit about, um, being the head of developer experience and what your role or title means. and. I want to couch this in in this idea, right? There's, a, there's a, a number of words, I would say, two that are kind of most popular in, in terms of describing developer-focused roles. So there's like, you know, developer relations, developer advocacy, or developer advocates. Yeah. And I think that yeah. those are often visibly focused on outputs. Certainly they do a lot of work internally and like ed- educate, like bringing what's happening in the communities back and talking with internal and product teams. But a lot of those are focused on, you know, outputs like education to help developers succeed with what are increasingly complex products. But I think developer experience leans a bit more toward inputs. So like asking that question around, what are we building and how do developers use and move through it? And let's like pre-think not so that we don't have to build education afterwards to help them with it, but it's rather like, how can we build this so that we don't retroactively have to like, design education just to help people start with it or something like that? And so I'm wondering if yep. you can talk a little bit about what it means to be ahead of developer experience, both at temporal and then philosophically, if, that, if you would see that as like you know inputs versus outputs based, and, and if we could all shift toward more developer experience input thinking, I also imagine the world might be a little better place for developers.
0: I like that. I really uh, like that framing of input-output. I don't think anyone has put it to me that way before. Um, but I think I agree with it. Um, there's a, there's a limit to how far you can go because... It, uh, and I'll put it this way. So my role is a product role. I'm on the product team. I report to the head of product at Temporal. Um, and and we, do a, we do a bunch of things. So I, I work uh, with the docs team. I work with the DevRel team. And I was the... Uh, because we didn't have anyone else, I was the lead product manager for our TypeScript SDK. So I, I was in the weeds designing the APIs that I was about to go write the docs for and then also do the devrel for. <laughs> so um, that's kind of the kind of multi-hat thing that you have to do at a, at a smaller company. Um, but definitely as, as you mature, each of these becomes specialized roles that should have people who know what they're doing, take care of each of them. Um, I would say that also as well, um, I, I highly empathize with what you just said, because I was a developer advocate at uh, AWS um, and at Nellify, and when I found issues that I that I like, a lot of times you're you're at the tail end of the value chain mm. um, when facing customer problems. Like you you speak the most with customers or, or potential users, but then you have the least power to do anything right. about it. Um, so <laughs> often, like I would write a blog post documenting like here's a pro- here's how you solve the problem that you should solve. But really, like the best docs are the docs that you don't have to read right? Because the the product is so intuitive, right? So really what you should do if you care about developer experience is have somebody end-to-end going like, all right, we're hearing this a lot from the customers, like let's actually prioritize this. Uh, But it takes a company that buys into that end-to-end philosophy uh, and to typically, designing your orchard that way helps to guarantee that. Whereas, if you have product that is completely separate and never talks to a developer experience or uh, developer relations, um, that's kind of what you what you get. Where you, you kind of ship your orchard in in, the, in terms of the developer experience that you that you have there. Um, so I, I do strongly believe that. So I, I kind of think about the think about it in terms of concentric circles, right? Like at the core, you have the product design, API design, and all that. Um, at the early stages of a company, which is where I am, um, you have the most impact there because um, there's not that many other people, and you can have direct input uh, as as you go along. Uh, in in larger companies, this is a specialized function with uh, with very long running commitments, and naturally, the DevX people um, will, will be will be focused on other parts of the adoption curve. Um, so then you grow out grow out from there, and you think about docs, right? You think about um, first party tooling like um, um, CLI tooling or UI tooling, anything that helps people that's not core, but it's still part of the engineering that uh, contributes towards the developer experience. Uh, then you think about uh, the first party content that you start producing, right? That is not in the core docs, but you you still get people to integrate with you or, or to give talks about how they use you, because that is a really a uh, different way of uh, pe- how people figure out how to uh, use or get the most out of you. Then I often think about from there going to community, um, which is something I also am focusing on and hiring for, hint, hint. Um, (laughs) uh, And and that's that's where we, by the way, also uh, engage a lot with... people like common room um, because you, you guys you. are the experts at <laughs> managing community <laughs> shout out right I have to <laughs> uh, and, and we've been blown away for by common room for anyone who is interested in building developer community uh, go hit Rebecca up <laughs> um, <laughs> but yeah um, and so so uh, and that transition is from devrel to community is is from is this transition from one to many to many to many and, and having that ongoing uh, engagement there and then finally for me uh, the, the last thing is sort to of think about is sort of the third-party content the the user-generated content that has happens outside the community, instead of us creating that content or having people talk to each other on a one-off basis, having ongoing engaged content. Um, and some of that content can be job listings, which I really like as, as user content, <laughs> uh, which we have, by the way, um, uh, temporal slash careers. Uh, the first half is our jobs, and the second half is our users' jobs, and nice. we want people to, to get hired because then they'll be super loyal to you, which is a fantastic growth hack. Um, and um, <laughs> And Plus yeah, one. I mean, so there, there's that's the entire journey, right? In terms of developer experience, um, radiating, radiating, out, radiating out from the product, and hopefully the communication channels have, uh, meet um, you know up and down that that line of uh, thinking.
1: So that is absolutely amazing, and honestly, I think we need to do another episode with you just talk, talking about developer experience and that process. Um, unfortunately, we are way over time, um, yes. but listen, I, Sean, this was awesome. I thoroughly enjoyed this. Um, I think the listeners hopefully learned a bunch of stuff and weren't annoyed by me being a little giddy talking about self-position times. Um, but um, but anyways, if, uh, if users want to, or yeah, users, geez. if <laughs> listeners want to get a, a hold of you or find out more about what you're working on, temporal, things like that, what are the best ways to uh, to find you online?
0: Oh, uh, yeah, definitely hit me up uh, at swix on Twitter or swix.io on my blog. That's about it.
1: Awesome. <laughs> and we've got a couple of other places too, GitHub, uh, YouTube, um, LinkedIn. We'll put those all in the show notes. Thanks again, Sean. It was awesome.
2: Thanks so much, Sean. Thanks for having me.